I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. This week, I want to talk about Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. But I promise, I promise, I won't talk about it in the same way that everybody else is talking about it, okay? All right. All right, so let me just get right into it. Um, I'm fascinated with this film. I thought it was a great film. Um, And the reason why I watched it in the first place is not because of the buzz, but because, simply put, while The Irishman is supposed to be about um, uh, Frank Sheeran, who's played by Robert De Niro, um, the sub-story, an aspect of the story is that this Jimmy Hoffa, this big big larger-than-life character, Jimmy Hoffa, which is played by, in this film, uh, Robert De Niro, or um, Al Pacino. Um, I've been fascinated with his disappearance since I was a child. Um, I have always been curious and a little dumbfounded how a famous person, 70s famous is still famous for today, um, how a famous person could disappear without a trace. And then... People, what was it, uh, four years later, eight years later, something like that, him being declared dead, but they still never found his body. And they have not until this day found his body. You know, so you can guess that he is dead, but there's no proof that he is, right? So it's always been fascinating to me that a person could essentially just disappear, right? So anyway, so that's what drew me to this film. Um, And then the fact that there are three big name actors and and Martin Scorsese himself, who's, you know, critically acclaimed and um, is known for producing really great films. And I've seen films that I found to be really great, even though they were long as all get out. Anyway, so. So, yeah, I that was a draw, but then also the actors were a draw. And then the ultimate draw for me was the story itself. Although I don't know that I'd ever heard this particular story, but it always kind of made sense to me that this story, it sort of kind of makes sense. And today I'm not going to spend any time talking about the story itself um, because it's already out there. Um, There was a book written by Frank Sheeran or maybe not written by, but co-authored by Frank Sheeran or based on Frank Sheeran's accounting of what he said happened to Jimmy Hoffa called uh, I Hear You Paint Houses, which I'll talk about that phrase and the significance of that phrase a little later. Um, But anyway, so that book has been out, been out, right? And then um, there is floating around somewhere. I'm sure you can find it. Um, Frank Sheeran did an interview with a reporter from a local news channel Um, where in that interview, he admits to uh, killing Jimmy Hoffa. And I'm sure you can find that on Google right now. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the story. You know the story, right? Or you can find it while you're listening to me talk right now. You can literally do your Googles and find the story. Go to Wikipedia and read the entire plot, right? Um, So I'm not going to spend any time talking about that, but I will talk about the particulars of the film as it relates to its critical reception, um, you know, the budget, the, you know, the time and development to release. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the critical reception is really interesting to me. Um, but I mean, actually, no, it's not because it's, it's pretty clear. They're already announcing now, even though the film has only been out for two months, 
And I'll talk about aspects of that, even though it was only released um, the day before Thanksgiving. It's been out since September. Anyway, um, but like there's already talk about uh, nominations for Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Best Film, so on and so forth. So a lot of people are talking about this film. A lot of people have seen this film and a lot of people like it. And again, I like this film. I do. Um, yeah, so I'll get into that. And like I said, and then I'll, I'll cover four specific points about this film that stood out to me. And then I'll just end it by just giving my final thoughts. Okay, so let me just start from the top. Okay, so it's a Martin Scorsese film, um, which pre- it first premiered, like I said, first premiered um, in September, actually September 27th at the 57th New York Film Festival. Um, and then it had, in between that, it had a limited theatrical release um, on November 1st, which I didn't even, I've heard them talking, about. I, I've heard murmurs about this movie for over a year, right? But I didn't know that it was going to be in theaters. I just remember that, was it in New York Times? It was some, it was some piece, some article that came out where Martin Scorsese was basically talking about, I don't know if he was bemoaning the rise of Netflix and, and streaming services and how he doesn't think that his films belong there. But nevertheless, like, I guess it was him coming to terms with the idea that film, film viewing is changing. And I think I, I didn't even put too much energy into it because you know how a lot of people spend a lot of energy talking about something that is so insignificant. And at this at the moment when that that article came out, it must have come out six or seven months ago for sure. It was not September. It was like summer or spring of 2019 this year that article came out and everybody started talking about uh, Martin Scorsese like he was out of touch like he was looking for he he was what is it yearning yearning for film releases and the way things used to be in Hollywood when a film would come out people would you know, plan around the release of the film. They would go see it on release day or whatever, or plan to watch it on that weekend. And that's just not the way things are done anymore. And he's, I think he was waxing, not waxing poetic, but just kind of thinking out loud in that article, trying to come to terms with the the changing way that people view films. And anyway, I didn't care. I still don't. I still don't care. You evolve with the times. When when talking films came out, people, I'm sure, bemoan the fact that talking films came out when silent films were just as good. Speaking films um, or films with sound in it changed the film history, right? The, the film industry, right? All those people who, y'all know by now, you've seen enough uh, portrayals of silent movies to know that silent movies, when they were played in theaters, there was a person, usually a woman, who was playing an organ and creating a soundtrack right then or at least playing the score to that film while you were watching it in the theater and so with the advent of talking films came the the opportunity to add music to the film itself right so who was put out of business that organist and then when um 
you know, films. There have been other revolutions or, or changes in, uh, uh, I can't think of the word that I wanted to use, but anyway, there have uh, been other um, changes in filming and the way we do filming that I'm sure have made people uncomfortable and put some people out of business and, re- and made other people evolve to still be relevant and be a part of the film industry. So honestly, like you being mad at the fact that you create films that you don't want to watch on small screens on, on, you don't want people to watch it on a phone. What are you saying? Like, what are you, what are you saying? What are you playing at? I'm gonna be honest with you. This film and this film's runtime is, uh, three hours and 46 minutes. I'm not watching that in no, I'm not, I'm not watching that in the theater. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not watching it in the theater. And in fact, I'll just, you know, uh, I did not watch this film in one sitting. I binged it like I would binge any other uh, series. I watched, I watched about an hour, about an hour and a half, and then I cut it off and I did something else. And then I either came back to it that same night or came back to it the next day. I watched it in a weekend. It's three hours and 46 minutes. I watched it in a weekend. I'm not sitting in nobody's theater watching no darn near four hour movie. Those days are done. We don't do that anymore. So evolve, Martin. Jeez. Anyway, meanwhile, back at the ranch, everybody loves your film. And I imagine if Netflix ever releases the, uh, what do you call it? The metrics on how many people watch the film. I I bet you a lot of people watch the film through Netflix, which means they watch it on their phone. <laughs> or they probably could have, you know, they could have watched it on their big screen TV or whatever, but many of them watch it on their phone. Now, anyway, so um, anyway, so <laughs> let me get back to what I was supposed to be talking about. Anyway, so um, so it premiered at <laughs> it premiered at the 57th annual New York Film Festival on September 22nd, and then was released in theaters on number, some theaters on November 1st, and then it actually came out on, it was released on Netflix on the, uh, th- um, November 22nd, or 27th, the day before Thanksgiving. Um, and it is, the movie itself, The Irishman, is based on Sharon's autobiography, I Hear You Paint Houses. And this film was a long time, a long time in the making. So while the film was announced um, that is going to be made in 2014. It has been in development since 2010. 2010, right? Filming didn't actually begin until, or principal photography, as they say, didn't actually begin until 2017. 2017. Seven whole years. Seven years from development to filming is a long time. And so I get why (laughs) it's like a piece of me gets why it was three hours and 48 minutes Um, because it just took so long to get out of product to get from development to filming Jiminy Christmas. Anyway, seven years is a long time. Anyway, um, so it stars Robert De Niro as Frank Sheeran, who is the Irishman, Um, the film's they call him, he's the Irishman. Anyway, uh, Joe Pesci as Russell Buffalino, who is the head of the Buffalino crime family, whose territory is north, um, eastern Pennsylvania, which includes Philly. Um, and Al Pacino as Jimmy Hoffa, who is the notorious union leader for the Teamsters, who 
like I said, mysteriously vanished in the 70s and was later ruled dead, even though they never found his body. Um, the budget for the film was $140 million, but it ended up being over that because, you know, that happens. Anyway, the average um, critical reception right now, is, it's got 8.3 out of 10 score on IMDb. It is rated 97% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes and 94% uh, favorable rating on Metacritic. On Twitter, on my Twitter feed, my Twitter feed likes this film, but um, there are some hard conversations or pretty blunt, I will say, but straightforward and delicate conversations about Martin Scorsese's use of uh, CGI. And I'll get into that in a minute because, you know, a lot of people don't enjoy the use of CGI because they think they, it ruins the film experience. I don't necessarily think that, but I think you can't just rely on CGI. Um, excuse me, and I'll explain. I'll explain, I'll explain what I mean later. All right, so let me get into my four main points. Okay, so now for my main points. So point number one. Um, so this movie is about Frank Sheeran, who was a hitman for the Buffalino family in a nutshell. But I was drawn, though, to Jimmy Hoffa, um, who was the head of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Okay, so I told you I was fascinated how someone famous could just disappear and no one ever find him again, even until today. Um, so in all of the, the biographies I've looked at regarding Jimmy Hoffa, um, when I say he was famous, he was famous. And I'm not just saying 70s famous, 60s, 50s famous. He was famous like anybody famous that you can name today was famous back then. Um, he was seen as a champion for the working man. He was literally the head of the Teamsters Union. Um, but what we know is, what we know is, whatever you think about unions, they were created in the 20s and 30s to protect the worker from the business owner, um, who were, for all intents and purposes, more, in, you know, invested in making sure their bottom line was cool than making sure their workers were together and had the things that they need, had a living, excuse me, a living wage, or not even, people don't even have a living wage now, but you get what I mean, that they were more concerned with the welfare, welfare of the company than they were of the workers that they hired to perform tasks, right? And so you've got these, in the, the, 30, the 40s and 50s, you've got a lot of organizing of blue collar workers to champion for higher pay, better support, healthcare and all of that stuff, right? Basic necessities. We take it we take for granted that many businesses today have unions, but what we know is places like Amazon and um Walmart don't allow their workers to unionize. And we also know that those workers are held to extremely high um circumstances often are 
their working conditions are fair, but the pressure to perform well is high, especially in Amazon uh, warehouses. And in Walmarts, you already know the routine. We've heard for years now, over a decade, maybe two decades, the last 20 years, how frustrating it is to be a Walmart worker, to know that they only get paid but a certain amount of money. And then if they have grievances, there's not a lot that they can do. They can't collectively work together. They are very much anti-union. They're an anti-union organization. And I, th- there is an, a thought out there that says we don't have a need for unions anymore. And I, to that, I say, look at Amazon and Walmart. But the reason why I have an opinion and I'm passionate about union, you know, the advent of the creation of unions and the purpose of them, which is to protect the worker and to create a, a basically create an avenue for workers to get what they want while also giving the company, the establishment, what they want is because my dad was a union leader for the better part of 20 years, almost 30, I think. Um, And so I can remember as a little girl, um, him going off to Chicago, him going off to Detroit, you know, uh, DC even as his union rep, as a union rep to represent his local. Um, He was a steel worker. Uh, United Steelworkers of America, it was his um, his union. And anyway, so daddy would, you know, go and travel and represent his people. Um, and to this day, daddy um, still talks about the uh, importance of having a union, because if you don't, we know what happens when you don't. Listen, we got teachers unions, right? a collective unit of folks who are supposed to be looking out for the welfare and protection of teachers, right? We have whole union teachers unions who are saying these teachers aren't getting paid enough to the point where they have to now strike so that you can pay attention to the fact that these teachers are coming out of their own pocket to provide supplies for these students that they're supposed to be teaching and whose, whose success their job is based on. If these kids aren't successful, if they don't, if they don't perform at a certain level on those standardized tests, this, these teachers are looked at. These teachers, are the, they are impacted, right? So that's why you had teachers in, in uh, Arizona striking and Chicago striking and even here in Maryland, acting, you know, getting ready to strike, especially in Baltimore at, cert- at a certain point because unions are important to protect people who individually would not be able to make a lot of change, right? But collectively, they can make a, a whole lot more change, especially in the structure, the power structure that is set up for whatever their job that they're working, right? And so, you know, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, it was revolutionary. In the 50s, it was established. But in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, it was a new thing still to organize because it was seen as if You know, there was a lot of propaganda that was out from these big time corporations that were saying, oh, you know, unions are just dirty and y'all just trying to get the biggest buck for you and you ought to earn your keep. You know what I mean? You you we're giving you a, a, a good paycheck. What's wrong with what we're paying you? Why do you want more? You seem to be greedy. You want to be me. You know what I mean? Something like that. And so you have movies like On the Waterfront with a big time actor. Ooh, big time after played on um, street played in streetcar named desire. Oh, what is his name? Oh, what is his name? I can't call his name, uh, but he was a heartthrob. Had always been a heartthrob in films. Uh, played in Last Tango in Paris. Oh my god, I'm just going down his 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 uh. 
all the movies he's played in at this point. Shoot, I can't remember his name. The only names I have in my head right now are Robert De Niro, <laughs> Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci, and, and, and of course, Martin Scorsese. Those are the names that I have in my head right now, but this, he's a, he's a big-time actor. Died in the 90s, or maybe late 90s. Um, there was a, he had a scandal. I'm trying to give you as much information as possible so that you know what I'm talking about. Who I'm talking about. He had a scandal um, in the 80s where his son... He either shot and killed, he shot and killed someone in his home in Polynesia. He had a house in Polynesia and um, this guy living there notoriously gotten larger in his later life because he was just gluttonous. Um, And he had affairs with his maids. And there was an incident that happened in the late 80s, early 90s, where he took someone's life and he stood on trial or his son took someone's life and he stood on trial. And he was waxing poetic in, in the in the courtrooms, a whole thing. Anyway, I think he was ultimately acquitted um, of what happened, but definitely there was a murder trial that he was involved in, or manslaughter trial that he was involved in. But yeah, he was uh, uh, big time. He knew Harry Belafonte and, and all of them. Um, I can't remember his name. Anyway. Um, there was a film called On the Waterfront. If you look up On the Waterfront, the late lead person is the person I'm talking about. Um, and anyway, it was a propaganda film. That was the whole point of me going on that tangent was there, there were propaganda films that came out in the 40s and 50s against unions and On the Waterfront is one of them. Um, where, where essentially the main guy is a part of a union, a shoreman, longshoreman's union, which is, <clears throat> I think they have long. We have longshoremen here in Baltimore, and I think there's there's a young longshoreman union um, here too. And anyway, those are the folks that work on the docks and help unload all these big old cargo ships that are dropping off things from Panama and so on and so forth, um, or at least you know all over the place, right? So those are the people who are the dock workers. And so in this film, the lead character, who is a very famous actor whose name I cannot remember, um, is caught up in this thing where he's now pitted against the union and the police, basically. And he's being made to tell the truth. And he's like, you know, the union, your union, they, they're supposed to be your brothers and they love you, but they're playing you right now is essentially the, the moral of the story. And he, his name is Stanley. He ends, his name is Stan, Stanley Kowalski. No, Stanley Kowalski is. Never mind. Forget it. Forget it. Um, long story short, the movie On the Waterfront is a, is a propaganda film against unions, and you should watch it, or at least go to the Wikipedia page. Anyway, I said all that to say, unions were not a favorite of big industry people um, to the point where there were whole movies that came out in opposition to unions. Nevertheless, you cannot deny that unions are the reason why there is a such thing as a cost of living increase. Well, a reason why there's a such thing as a cost of living increase these days, because there's some people had to raise their fist and get frustrated and start making trouble for the comfortable people to, to make sure that it was understood that this ain't good for me. It might be good for you and your bottom line, but I need more money to support my family. Right. And so that's why we can even have conversations about living wages um, today because people organizing people like Jimmy Hoffa for all of his flaws and faults and the Teamsters Union for all of their flaws and faults championed for increased wages to help 
people support their families and, and themselves, right? So, and you can appreciate how corporations don't like unions, why they don't like unions. Because at the end, they're trying to get more bang for their buck. And if they can get somebody to work for cheap and not have to pay anybody, they'll, they're going to do that. If you think about it now, like uh, a, security, uh, a security firm, they would rather make people work overtime than hire another person. Why? Because if you hire another person, you have to offer them benefits. And benefits cost the organization. So why not? Why fill that vacant position when you can just offer people overtime? I'll pay you time and a half, but I'm not going to pay your salary, your, wa- your wages plus um, your wages plus uh, health benefits. I'm not doing that. I'll give you a couple dollars. You're going to like it anyway. Uh, here, here you go. Here you a couple dollars. Anyway, so, so yeah, there's a reason why unions exist because at the end of the day, businesses and corporations and, and all of that, they got to protect the bottom line. At the end of the day, and these unions, in theory, are supposed to protect the worker and keep the, biz- keep the business itself honest and, you know, create a good working environment. That said, just like with anything, unions have always been notoriously, especially when they were first forming and certainly in those bad old days in the 40s, 50s and 60s, um, were ripe for corruption, just like the federal government was and in many ways still is. Um, any big business, any corporation, any people in power are corruptible, it, but it takes a strong person not to be corrupted, right? Because there's always going to be someone who wants to offer you a lot of money just to look the other way. And so what we know is in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, when or, unions were organizing, well, you know, 30s and 40s, and even 50s when unions were organizing, um, but by the 50s, they were pretty much organized. Um, there was a lot of corruption happening. And the, the way that it was coming across is, you know, oh, this piece of product fell off a truck, my bad. You know what I mean? But meanwhile, back at the ranch, it actually didn't fall off the back of the truck. It actually, you know, I'm working with this store owner here. You know, I give them a little bit of extra product and they'll give me a little bit of money off the top, right? And so... You know, it's it's things like that right up until, you know, well, give me this contract. I am a plumber. Give me this contract and, you know, and I'll pay you under the table sort of thing. Right. And so a lot of the people that were doing that, or at least it is documented that mobs, um, organized crime um, organizations, organized crime families, how they chose to create a foothold and create an underworld, a criminal enterprise, was to support, you know, create these back, back, um, back alley deals, um, back room deals with businesses, organizations, and of course unions. And so, where this the Irishman story takes place, and Jimmy Hoffa and um, Frank. Uh, Sheeran himself is that Jimmy Hoffa, who was a rising um, teamster, uh, you know, was a, uh, the head of his local um, teamsters union, but wanted to ultimately be the head of uh, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. And let me put, uh, wanted, he was having some trouble winning. Um, 
and, and, and taking on that position as the, ma- the president of the International uh, Brotherhood of Teamsters. And so he relied on the Buffalino family. He went to Russell Buffalino and the Buffalino family um, to help him secure that seat. And he ultimately secured that seat. Now, let me pull over a second. The Teamsters is a type of union. The International Brotherhood of Teamsters is a type of union. And in this instance, it was for truck drivers. So all those people that drive along the road and stuff like that, they might not necessarily be in a union. They might be independent contractors today. But back in the day, the people who drove product for companies and organizations um, had organized a Teamsters union. And so if you drove a truck for Pepsi, if you drove a truck for the milk company, you were likely a part of the a Teamsters uh, local union. And those Teamsters local union, or again, people who drove trucks, were those local unions were affiliated with the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. And Jimmy Hoffa wanted to be the, the president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, which was significantly powerful, a very powerful, probably the most powerful union at the time in the country. And so... When I, just hearkening back, when I say that I find it fascinating that someone as famous as Jimmy Hoffa, even though his, his, you know, he had come out of prison and he was, his popularity was waning a little bit, um, he was still famous and that a famous person could disappear without a trace is mind blowing to me. Anyway, but that's exactly what happened. Anyway, so, so yeah, so that's, that's the movie. So the movie itself is Frank talking about his relationship with Russell Buffalino and his relationship with Jimmy Hoffa. And ultimately, he's saying, I had to take out Jimmy Hoffa at Russell Buffalino's um, request because Jimmy, Jimmy um, Hoffa had run afoul to the families, not just the Buffalino family, but the crime the organized crime families in the area. And so there's that. So, so like I said, even though the film is about the Irishman, Frank, um, Frank Sheeran, I was more interested in the Jimmy Hoffa piece because I had always been interested in Jimmy Hoffa, right? So yeah, so I, I don't think that's a bad thing, even though it is called the Irishman. I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just It's something that happened. It kind of got lost. To me, it kind of got lost, even though Robert De Niro as Frank Sheeran was telling the story throughout. I don't know. I was more interested in the Jimmy Hoffa piece. All right. Second point. I think we are meant to be wowed by Robert De Niro's portraying of Sheeran, um, as well as Pacino's portrayal of Jimmy Hoffa. And again, I am a I was drawn to the storyline for Jimmy Hoffa. But I wasn't necessarily wowed by Robert De Niro's performance of Sheeran or Al Pacino's performance of um, Hoffa. I was paying attention to Joe Pesci's portrayal of Russell Buffalino. So Joe Pesci, who is currently 76, and this will make sense in a minute, was portraying a 50-something-year-old Russell Buffalino who ages to, I think, what is, I think, his late 80s, also with failing health. But let me tell you, how can I tell you, how can I explain how his performance touched me? It was beautiful. The way he was, you can be old and portray somebody older and you can shake and you can do all this stuff. And there's certainly a part where it feels like he was putting on a little extra, but there is something about 
So I, I said Joe Pesci is 76 right now for a reason. So he has been in his seven. He was in his 70s when he was shooting the film, playing someone who was maybe 20 years younger at one point and then playing someone who was maybe 10 years older at another right in the film. The way he his mannerisms, how he moved did more for me than the makeup that they put him under, the prosthetics that he had him, that they had him in, which they did a really great job in, in you know, making him up. Um, but the way he moved, the way he engaged, I thought was awesome. I thought it was so, it was moving to me. And to be honest with you, there was a, there was a scene, a particular scene at the end where He's in jail and he's had some health issues. His health is not well. And he's supposed to be in, I think he's in his 80s at this point. Um, and there was, a, there was a place where I, I, I'm dead serious, I almost cried. Looking at Joe Pesci be this person. Because it was moving the way he portrayed this person. So again, he was on the, he was on the, he was in this film with some heavy hitter actors in Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. But I was drawn to Joe Pesci, even though he was a supporting character, even though I was more interested in Al Pacino's character as Jimmy Hoffa, I was moved by Joe Pesci's portrayal of Russell Buffalino from the time he was maybe in his late 50s up through his 80s and in failing health. That... I wasn't, you're not supposed to like him, but I did. You're not supposed to like him, but I did. Um, because Joe Pesci made me. It's really weird. Cause like, think about it. Joe, um, Russell Buffalino is an, or as the leader of an, an organized crime family. He has ordered the murder of several people. He has been a scoundrel. He has organized, he has terrorized at, at his command. He has terror. I'm sure he has terrorized a lot of people. And yet I still really liked him. Um, and I paid attention to him more than I did uh, Sheeran or um, Hoffa, even though I was more interested in Hoffa's story. Anyway, but so, yeah, so Joe Pesci is a great actor. And it's really interesting because so <sighs> Joe Pesci, what we know is he is notoriously picky. This man has not been in a film since 98. And that was the, the Lethal Weapon series. And I think it was Lethal Weapon 3. He hasn't been in a movie since Lethal... He hasn't shot a... He filmed a, a movie since Lethal Weapon 3, which came out in 98. Um, and I think there's a reason for that. I think outside of him just being picky, I think he wanted to do other things. Like I know he has... Um, Joe Pesci has some albums out. So I think he's a singer. Um, and I think he didn't... I, I think he's one of those types that doesn't want to just do things just to do them. I think he wants to feel things. I think he wants to be in the mood to do those things. And if he's not, he won't. And so he did the, I don't know why he did. There was something that drew him to do in the Lethal Weapon, Weapon series. I think those were pretty whatever. I didn't really love his character in there. I thought his character was annoying, but I think, he, I mean, he played it well. Um, 
but I just thought his character was annoying. I loved his casino, his character in Casino, you know, in, in Goodfellas. He's a bad guy. He's dangerous. He portrays this person that is a Molotov cocktail and could, uh, you know, a powder keg that exploded any moment, right? He's really good at that, right? And then he plays, I think I didn't, I think the reason why I didn't like his portrayal of um, whomever he was supposed to play, some two-bit criminal in uh, Lethal Weapon was because it wasn't powerful. He, he, was, he was weak and pathetic in the Lethal Weapon series, and so I think that's why I didn't like it. Anyway, um, so, so that was his last film, right? Lethal Weapon 3. He comes back and he does this? So good. So good. And what I'm hearing is that he's there's already a um, he's already got a nomination for best supporting actor and he better get it, too, because, well, I don't know who, who he's up against, but he's, it's well deserved. How about that? Um, because, like I said, we're not supposed to like Russell Buffalino, but I do. And it's because of um, Joe Pesci's portrayal. Anyway, um, OK, point number three. Go, we're going to talk real briefly about CG. Well, not briefly, but anyway, we just, we're gonna, about to talk about CGI. Okay. So with the use of CGI, Scorsese tries to de-age De Niro. And I think that's been a huge thing. That was what was talked about over the last months, right? Three or four months. Talking about the fact that they're de- Scorsese de-aged uh, Robert De Niro. Um, so Robert De Niro, who is also the same age as Joe Pesci. So he's 76 now. So he was in his 70s when he was doing this film. Um, de-aged, so, so Scorsese de-aged De Niro so he could portray a 30-something Frank Sheeran. And so that, what I'll say, is what everyone is saying and has been saying, which is CGI can only take you so far, but physical ability takes you the rest of the way. And I cannot remember the critic who's on my timeline who said it but he literally pulled out one. It's like, you know how uh, films will have a, a preview, a, a preview. He literally pulled out the preview that I think has. I don't know if I've ever seen. I don't actually be honest with you. I never saw a preview of the Irishman. I just saw the stills. I saw stills from it and I saw the, the poster from it. Um, but this particular critic this black critic pulled it out and he's like, I love Robert De Niro, but in this particular scene, he's showing his age, basically. And in this moment, what I need you to know is I'm not being ageist. Everyone has value. Everyone can, you can't limit a person because of their age, either too young or too old, depending on what the thing is. Obviously, if it's a dangerous something or other, or, or if it's an explicit something or other, obviously age is a factor. But when it comes to acting and when it comes to what we can do as people, you can't limit a person in age. But what we're, but what we can say is if you have a 76 year old person portraying a 30 something year old person, there has to be a physical ability difference, right? You have to see that person has to move like a 30 something year old, especially in if it's a physically demanding scene. And there was a scene that I think a lot of people recognize that while the CGI really did shave many years off of Robert De Niro, 
the actor was made to behave in a particular way, in a violent way, and it seemed less intimidating than it was meant to. Um, and I cannot remember. It, it was the scene where he's supposed to be stomping out somebody. Um, and I think it's in, a, it's, in, it's in the trailer. It's in the trailer if you look it up right now. He's supposed to be stomping out somebody, but it seems like his, his movements are labored, but it's not uh, effective. So you got this 30-something-year-old person that's supposed to be stomping out this person for something he did. And it, it looks like the person could still get up from the beatdown and beat down Robert De Niro as, uh, as Frank Sheeran, to me. Um, and just backing up a taste, if you look at pictures of Robert De Niro in his 30s and Robert De Niro as Frank Sheeran, who's supposed to be in his 30s, that man looked like he's in his 40s, late 40s too. Do you know what I mean? Like there was a point where he almost looked, like I told you, Joe Pesci was supposed to be portraying a 50-something, a late 50-something, almost 60-something um, uh, Russell Buffalino at one point. And there was a point where when Frank Sheeran first meets Russell Buffalino, again, Russell Buffalino is supposed to be in his 50s, something like that. And he calls uh, Frank Sheeran uh, young man. I'm looking at both of them. I'm like, how you going to call him a young man? He looks about your age. He looked like maybe five, six years younger than you. How is he a young man and you're not? Do you know what I mean? Like now again, Joe Pesci in his movements made himself seem like an old man. And I mean, he's 76, but he was in his seventies when he was shooting this thing. So maybe he was 75 at the time he was shooting it, but he tried to make him seem himself seem like an old man in the fifties. Right. And you've got Frank Sheeran, who's supposed to be in his thirties, but I'm looking in his face and that CGI only aged, took a significant amount of time off of Robert De Niro's face. But nevertheless, it was still the actor and the dude looked like he was in his late forties, early fifties. Right. So almost looked like the same age as the person Joe Pesci was trying to portray at the time. Right. So again, they, what they literally did, what I know is they put they CGI a de-aged Robert De Niro, but it was Robert De Niro playing in this film. And like I said, in this particular screen that was a part of, or the, this particular scene that was a part of the trailer, he's trying to stomp somebody out and it looked like the person could stomp him out. Um, and I don't know. It's like he wanted to use Robert De Niro because Robert De Niro is a great actor. Robert De Niro is a great actor, but I wonder if there was something else, if there was another way that they could, achieve, could have achieved that, like for the, for the close-ups, for the close-ups where, you know, he's sitting still or he's, um, you know, not doing an action shot, but he's just walking or whatever. That could be, that could have been Robert De Niro with CGI, right? But for the shots where he's supposed to be moving and shaking and, and stuff like that and, and roughing somebody up, why couldn't that have been someone who was actually in his late thirties with Robert De Niro's de-aged face over him? Like, why couldn't you have done CGI on that too? Like, I don't know. It just, that stood out like a sore thumb to me. I wish that, I wish they'd have done that particular scene differently. And I wish they would have, again, CGI only works but so much. But again, there were, like I said, there were times where Robert De Niro looked the same age as Joe Pesci because they are the same age in real life. But um, anyway, I don't know. I just, I think they could have tried to do it better. Um, okay, final point. 
Al Pacino portrayed Hoffa well, as everyone expected. Well, I expected. I expected him to do it well. Um, he did do that thing that Al Pacino always does, where he does the, you know, the, I can't even do it. But, you know, the, the, the Al Pacino holler. You know how he hollers? Um, I don't even, you know what I'm talking about when he hollers. You can, scent of a woman. Um, shoot, name, fill in the blank. Uh, of course, well, he probably didn't have it super perfected um, in Scarface, but like, Name a film where <laughs> Al Pacino hollers and you're going to get the um, Al Pacino holler, right? Anyway, so he does that. But apart from that, he somehow tries to lose his uh, New York accent and he does a good job of doing it. Like, it's not perfect, but he does a really good job of trying to portray someone who is, in fact, not from New York and also not Italian and also very much... I didn't know Jimmy Hoffa didn't like Italians and didn't like the mob. Or at least in this portrayal. Portrayal, Jimmy Hoffa doesn't like the Italians and, doesn't, and Jimmy Hoffa really doesn't like the mob. Um, but nevertheless, he works with him because, again, he's an opportunist. In this portrayal, he's an opportunist and, um, you know, he does what he has to do, but he doesn't like it. So anyway, but in this portrayal, I think he successfully... The, the, the thing that stuck out to me, the thing, the reason why, even though I was more drawn to Joe Pesci's character than I was Al Pacino's, even though I was, I've always paid attention to Hoffa and always been fascinated with that story, I still do think that uh, Al Pacino does what he always does, which is a really good job in the film and the roles that he's trying to portray, because. He pulled something out of Jimmy Hoffa that I'd never noticed before. In all the biographies that I've watched, or at least the few biographies that I've watched several times, and the films, he pulled something out. Even, even I even remember watching that film with, um, is it Jack Nickel? Which one? Jack, is, I, get the Jack Nick, I get the Jacks confused. The actor confused with the golfer. I think it's Jack Nicholas. Not Nicholson is the golfer. Nicholas is the actor. So there was a film, I think it was called Hoffa, where Jack Nicholas was Hoffa. And he did a decent job. I don't remember much of the film because, I don't know, I think it was kind of boring for me. Um, but I did try to watch it. I can't remember if it was crit received well by critics or whatever. Um, and I don't remember if he, I don't think he got any awards for that um, Ro uh, not Robert I keep wanting to say Robert De Niro I can't think I can't I don't think Jack Nicholas got any awards for that but um you know I've, I've watched several things about Jimmy Hoffa and I've seen a few portrayals of Jimmy Hoffa and in all those portrayals I never I never got what Al Pacino gave us which was he played Jimmy Hoffa as a man who knew he could a man who knew he could be killed by betraying the mob, but who couldn't help but demand his own way anyway. Like, he could be killed. He knew how dangerous it was to, to play with the mob. But he did it anyway because he believed his own hype. And I don't think I ever got that before. To the point where there's a scene where he's told to chill out because you're doing too much. You are doing far too much. And it's after he's... He's been, you know the story, he was thrown in jail for um, uh, 
witness tamper, tampering with witness because uh, Robert F. Kennedy wanted, you know, he created a whole task force to get task force to get um, Jimmy Hoffa. Right. And so he wanted Jimmy Hoffa's head. And so he finally got him on jury tampering. Right. And so he went up, he went to prison for a number of years. And so he comes back and he wants to regain his position as the head of the International Teamsters uh, Brotherhood of Teamsters. Right. Um, But the mob didn't want him to. And, you know, the Teamsters Union had a closer relationship to the mob than than um, Hoffa wanted. And so anyway, so he's mad at that. And then he's mad at he wants to reclaim the throne, essentially. And the mob doesn't want him to. And this is where the the, that's the rub. So Jimmy Hoffa, knowing how powerful the mob is, knowing what they're capable of, believes his own hype and says, well, I'm capable of as much, too. And he thinks that he can hold the mob hostage. And what we know is you might be one person, but this is a whole crime. This is a whole net network of people. You just one person anyway, but he believed his own hype. And so in Pacino's portrayal of Hoffa, I kept this, this little scenario kept playing in my head and it's like, so the best way that I could describe Pacino's Hoffa is at least at the end of the, of this film, this film is saying, this is how Hoffa was. And it's as if, it's as if you say, it's as if your parent says, um, say one more word and you're grounded or you're going to be punished in some way. Right. And then you being the smart aleck that you are literally says the phrase one more word. Right. So not only is it insulting to your parent because you spoke when they told you not to, or you, you are, are, yeah, you spoke when they told you not that you spoke when they told you not to, but you are also being annoying and you're being disrespectful in not only speaking, but then, you know, taking that, that last phrase that they used and being a jerk, basically. So you're being a big time jerk and you're being extra disrespectful, right? And so that's essentially what I feel like happened. Jimmy Hoffa in this portrayal, Al Pacino's portrayal of Jimmy Hoffa, he believed his own hype. He believed he was still as powerful as he was before he went into prison. And he believed he didn't need the mob anymore. Even though he went to the mob and the mob is the reason why he got the, uh, the presidency of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, he didn't think he needed them anymore. And he thought he was bigger than them. And he believed his own hype and so started to do what he wanted to do. And as the movie portrays and as Frank, um, I keep pausing on his name because it's just not sticking with me. But Frank Sheeran, as Frank Sheeran says in his autobiography or in that book, uh, I see you paint houses. I hear you paint houses. Um, there was a point where uh, Hoffa had crossed the line at a point of no return. And so there was nothing that could be done because he was out of control, but to get rid of him. And so uh, Sheeran says that he was told to get rid of him. A guy that he had grown close to, whose children, according to According to the movie and the book, his children had grown close to Jimmy Hoffa. He was told, ordered, and he said he had no choice, but ordered by the Buffalino family to take out his own friend. Um, yep. And in Al Pacino's portrayal, 
it's again, he brings something that I've never seen before. I never noticed in the biographies and the autobiographies and in, in the, the, in those films, I, he brought out that aspect of Jimmy Hoffa that I never noticed, but it makes total sense. Even if you don't believe the theory of what Frank Sheeran is saying has said, it stands to reason that a person who was uber powerful has a hard time recognizing he's no longer uber powerful and, and therefore can be touched because at one point he was not able, he was untouchable. And so, yeah, Al Pacino does a really great job. Uh, again, I was more moved by Joe Pesci's portrayal of Russell Buffalino and his aging um, and just him in general. But Al Pacino comes through. He does come through. And also, let me be clear. Let me back up for two seconds and say that Robert De Niro's portrayal isn't bad either. Robert De Niro's Robert De Niro. I respect him as an actor and I like what he does. But it's, it's it, for me, it's Joe Pesci. Al Pacino and then Robert De Niro in terms of the top three actors in this film. And the last thing that I'll say, which isn't necessarily a point, it's just something that I just need to get off my chest. Anna Paquin plays Peggy, uh, Frank Sheeran's daughter, who is supposed to be an aware child who knows what her father has done, what, yeah, what he's into and all of that stuff. And I do not like her, I don't enjoy Anna Paquin's acting. I didn't enjoy it in True Blood. I don't enjoy it in this film. She also, but she also didn't feel like she was set up for success because she doesn't talk a lot in this film. Even though you see her often as a child and then as an adult, they literally, they use an actual child. Um, and then she is a teenage, she portrays a teenager and then a 20 something and then a 30 something in the film. Um, which that's not my issue. My issue is she doesn't talk a much and I don't enjoy her acting. I don't understand why. Like you choose a person because you choose a person. But the thing about it, maybe she looked like uh, Frank Sheeran's daughter. Um, this particular daughter that uh, is meant to be a focal point in the film. But... She doesn't talk a lot, and I don't understand why. There are ways that you can make someone seem like they're quiet without actually not making them talk. It's bizarre to me. It's very weird. And there are women in this film, but they're like ancillary characters. For real. Like, they, they have some agency, but not enough to matter. And so I think that's another thing that Martin Scorsese is going to have to come to terms with at some point, because I don't think he, pre he presents a whole lot of, of women characters who have a, a major role like I'm even thinking of Casino I'm thinking of Casino and I'm like girl you had Sharon Stone looking like you just had her out there didn't you do you know what I mean like even though out uh, <laughs> even though Joe Pesci Pesci's character was out of control even though Robert De Niro's character was out of control you had her looking like a fool for a large part of that film and I'm just like mm, all right and so it's like so you flash forward and while, you know, the women in this film aren't exactly fools, they don't have a ton of agency. And I don't know, maybe that's just me looking at it through a 2019 lens or maybe it's being, that's real. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, I just had to get that off my chest because for as great as I think this film is, it's still got some flaws. And one of those flaws are its women characters and specifically 
Anna, Anna Paquin's portrayal of Peggy, uh, Frank Sheeran's daughter, and then also just her, right? I think the writing for it is kind of bland. But anyway. In his book, I Hear You Paint Houses, um, Frank Sheeran says the phrase, I hear you paint houses, was something that Russell Buffalino said to him. And actually in the film, that it comes across the screen, crawls across the screen, um, after the title, the title sequence, I hear, uh, The Irishman, is I hear you paint houses, right? And that's something that Russell Buffalino says to him. And we come to know that that phrase means that Frank is a hitman. And so Ruffle is acknowledging that you're a hitman and I'm going to need your services. Um, and so there's an important conversation we should have at some point about war veterans, um, which Sheeran is one. Um, he's a World War II veteran. Um, and the untreated trauma they face in war that could help them detach in a way that would allow them to do unspeakable things like Sheeran had done. But that's another time. But the fact remains that um, while Frank confessed to killing Hoffa in more than one way, again, in this book, but then also in an, an art, um, a news interview with a local news channel, I think he was did that at least twice. What we know is that there are several um, there are several different theories out there. But he confessed to killing in. But in this story, Sheeran confesses to killing his friend. His children's, who his children saw as like a parental figure, he killed this man. Now he says in in the film, and it posits in sure he says it in the book, that he was given no choice. Either he was going to be killed, and his family was going to be killed, or he would kill Hoffa for making trouble. Right? Whatever you want to believe, um, you know this is it's just an interesting story, but. Even though there are several different stories out there, Frank is not the only, or Sharon is not the only person that has confessed to killing Hoffa. He's not the, that's not the only theory that's out there. I think the reason why Scorsese latched onto it is because it's a pretty compelling story. It's fleshed out from start to finish. There are several different uh, pathways that you can travel down and explore in the story itself about Frank and his relationship with his daughter, about Frank and his relationship with his 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 love life, how he got there in the first place, his experience in, in World War II, um, and then also Buffalino and the things that he had done, and even Hoffa himself, before prison, after prison, and all of that. So there's a lot to explore there, and I understand why, why Scorsese chose this route. But anyway, um, yeah, so what I would encourage you to do is go find that interview, go find that news interview. Um, that TV news interview that Frank um, Sheeran did, I think it would have had to have been in the 80s because I think he died in the 80s. So it was he was in the nursing home at the time. So find that. See if you can find it. I haven't looked for it, but I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Anyway, um, so that's enough about that. Um, yeah, so this, that's the show. I do want to, before I end... Um, give a special thank you to someone who reviewed the show actually back in July and it came from someone who called themselves shame on apple and there I'm going to 
grab their review in just a second. Okay. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's kind of long, but it says, um, I stumbled upon this podcast due to an obsession to the show Fleabag, um, which I had searched on. After listening to several other disappointing podcasts to discuss the show, I found this one and was thoroughly impressed. It's random, and it is, I'm, my, my show is random, um, because this podcast isn't focused on reviewing TV shows or anything. It just happened to be something she had gotten into lately and had things to discuss. And so she goes, the, the writer, I don't know who they are, the writer says, the good stuff has a good stuff section and has a great stuff sh- section, which really made my heart smile. And then the, the final thing that this person says is, this was such a pleasant surprise to find. I've listened to podcasts from major networks who are focused only on reviewing entertainment, which weren't nearly as high quality and as insightful as this wonderful podcast. Keep doing what you are doing, Bay Baltimore. And so whomever wrote this, um, shame on Apple. Thank you. I, you wrote this on July 10th. I hadn't paid attention. Um, because the show is streaming on different platforms. I, I just hadn't paid attention. So thank you so much for that review. Um, I really appreciate that. And, you know, y'all can take uh, shame on Apple's lead and leave me a positive review yourself. Um, four stars are better. Um, honestly, because that's how you're going to expand the reach of the show, you know? Donating is helpful too. Um, I try not to have a ton of ads on this show because I know that that's weird for a lot of people um, and it can be annoying to listen to. Um, So I try to keep that low, but like, I still wanna be able to keep this thing going. And so you click the show notes, um, you can click a link to my page and you can leave me a message about what you felt about this, um, about this episode or anything you wanted to talk about, or even my last episode where I talked about the issues my family is having with our, uh, that private cemetery, our private cemetery in Monroe, Louisiana. You can leave me a message about any of that um, stuff. And while you're there, you can even donate. Um, Even 99 cents will be a helpful contribution. But again, you can do just what Shame on Apple did and leave me a positive rating um, on all the places, CastBox, Pocket Cast, uh, Apple, of course, Google Podcast, um, Player.fm, Anchor itself, or anywhere you listen to this show. Share episodes, talk to people about it, engage me through Anchor.fm, and then just, you know, Keep giving me that fuel to keep doing this little thing I do. All right. Until next time. I think next week I might talk about more media. I don't know. I haven't decided. There's a show that I might spend a little bit of time on because it's annoying. It's annoying in a good and bad way. But I'll talk about that later. Maybe. Anyway, until next time.